Welcome to West Virginia University's Women in Science and Medicine podcast, brought to you by the Health Sciences Center's Office of Research and Graduate Education. We will be talking to women with careers in these fields, gaining their insight into what it's like operating in roles that are still mostly dominated by men. I'm your host, Mallory Weaver, and today my guest is Dr. Louise Risher, Assistant Professor in the Department of Biomedical Sciences in the Joan C. Edwards School of Medicine at Marshall University here in West Virginia. Welcome, Dr. Risher, and thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great. So for listeners um, that uh, may not be familiar with your work, can you briefly describe your journey to your current role? So I started my undergrad training at Nottingham Trent University in England. I then transferred partway through to George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, over here. And I then did my graduate studies at the University of Georgia under the mentorship of Alvin Terry, and then went on to do my postdoc at Duke University within the Department of Psychiatry. While it do have to think about this, in 2016, <laughs> I was promoted to assistant professor and obtained a joint appointment in the Durham Veteran Affairs Medical Center. And then in 2018, my husband, who is also a neuroscientist, and I went on the job market, obviously a two-body problem there, both trying to get neuroscience jobs at the same time in the same place. <laughs> but we were lucky to um, land at Marshall University. So it all worked out in the end. And yeah, so we've been at Marshall for four years now. That's great. Me personally, I'm not, I'm not sure. I love, actually, you can't see it here and our listeners can't cert- certainly can't see it, but I have a, a four-piece canvas of the New River Gorge Bridge. I visited there and did the bridge walk underneath, and I, I'm so fascinated by that area. Do you enjoy any of sort of the outdoor escapes that that part of the state has to offer? We love it. We're uh, really big into hiking. My daughter's still working on her endurance with her little legs. Yes, uh, but she she loves the nature too. We we go down there not as often as I would like, but we we went down last summer and and played around a lot. And yeah, it, it's if you love the outdoors, it's a great place to be. Yeah. Agree. So, and I always ask my guests this second question as well. What originally inspired you as a young girl or woman to pursue a career in science? Oh, it's such a convoluted story. So, I'll start with my characteristics. I am, I was always and still am immensely curious about everything. I want to know how everything works and why it works in a particular way. And if the answer is not good enough, I'm going to keep asking questions to the point where it drove my mother crazy. And to this day, it still drives my mother crazy. But I just always wanted to know more. And then when I got to high school and, you know, I got to do physics and chemistry and biology separately and kind of start to play around with experiments in the lab. It was, they were definitely my favorite subjects, but it wasn't. And so I knew that, you know, the sciences was a direction that I wanted to go in. I just didn't really know what I was going to do with that. And then when I went to Nottingham for university, my major was physiology, pharmacology, And it was really heavy in bench work. Every course you took had a bench component to it. And then I knew I loved it. 
And that is what I wanted to do. But what, like I said, I just didn't uh, really know. You know, I I grew up in a a coal mining town in a very blue collar place. Yeah. So, you know, being a scientist wasn't anything that anyone talked about. They were very, you know, we were expected to have blue collar jobs. I imagine very similar to West Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, opportunities weren't really... I guess, really discussed. And then I, so I was in Nottingham and I loved the course that I was taking, but I was also a swimmer and I was pretty highly ranked. Mm. Um, And moving to Nottingham meant that I needed to change teams and it just wasn't a great fit for me. So I was looking for change and then I was offered a swimming scholarship to George Mason. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. Absolutely. (laughs) So I packed my two suitcases. Uh And came to the US for the first time in my life and, you know, continued to study biology at George Mason. And after I graduated, I got a research technician position in Alvin Terry's lab at the University of Georgia. And I fell in love with neuroscience. I would get to work early. I would leave late. I would read papers. (laughs) I had like a million questions. And eventually he just said, you need to go to graduate school, (laughs) you know, and he said, you need to get your PhD. And at the point, at that point, you know, that never crossed my mind because no one ever told me that that was an option. I didn't even really know what a PhD was, you know, but he was like, this is something that you have to do. So glad Um, he pointed you in that direction. That's great. Phenomenal mentor to this day, a real uh, true advocate for, for me and many others. But yeah, he saw something in me and, you know, so I said, okay, I'll do it and remain in his lab for my graduate studies. And, you know, now I have my dream job. So that's great. I do want to get into what you specifically research because as we know, it's very relevant, particularly to student populations on campus. So you study long the longer-term effects of binge drinking. Can you, in layman's terms, kind of let us know what your findings and your research are all about? Yeah. So I, I think what I can do is kind of talk a little about two consortiums the National Institutes of Health put together when I was a postdoc. And so they kind of run in parallel, which I think is a really powerful way of looking at this problem of adolescent binge shrinking. So one of them is Encanda that actually look at the effects of adolescent alcohol use on the developing brain. And they do structural and functional brain scans and cognitive testing in these volunteers. And then parallel to that, we have another consortium that I was part of where we use essentially a rodent model of adolescent binge drinking, which allows us to look a little deeper at some of the functional things and protein changes that may be happening. So And I guess overall, just a few of the things that we see is that, well, I I guess I should back up just a second. So one of the things that we do know is that the brain continues to mature through the teens into the mid-20s. Right. It's very, some areas develop early, some other areas develop much later. The areas that tend to mature much later are actually areas that are really important for for thinking out consequences of your actions, for 
impulse control, you know, thinking of the long-term consequences of the things that you're doing. And that kind of fits really nicely with what we see in teens and adolescents and young 20s that tend to take more risks Risk. and not sure. really think of the consequences right. as yeah. much as someone in their 40s. So, you know, we're still seeing this brain maturation, which consists of essentially refining and stabilizing the communication and the network between these different brain regions to control these different elements of cognition. And what we essentially see is disruption of that maturation. So the way that these brain regions connect is disrupted. We see changes in the brain volume in various areas, and it really depends on the amount you drink and how early you drink. The more you drink and the earlier that occurs, the more, the more obvious those changes. So that's kind of the the human perspective of it. The the great thing about using the rodent model is that we can dig a little deeper and see whether these changes are happening at the functional level and look at the, the protein changes as well. Sure. So what we are able to see in the rodent model is that this connectivity once again is disrupted. And a lot of a lot of what we're seeing is in this prefrontal cortex area that is involved in this forethought impulse control. And we know already that sensation seeking or novelty seeking, which is kind of controlled through this network, is a really good predictor of alcohol consumption and risk-taking behavior. So whereas drinking the risk of becoming a heavier drinker even later in life then too. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So so we're trying to dig once again, a little deeper to try and understand. We, we have a sense of what kind of neuronal circuit remodeling is happening in some of our data. We have a sense of the changes in gene expression that seem to be disrupted in ways that they shouldn't be that, you know, is likely causing this circuit remodeling. But we're also seeing, you know, these functional changes. But one of the things that we're particularly interested in you know, everyone's heard of neurons. The one thing that people probably haven't heard of are glia. So there are two types of glia in the brain. One is microglia that essentially helps with the immune system. The other one is the astrocyte. And they're these star-shaped cells that people just thought just hung out and supported the neurons like physically, like sponges. Right. Um, But what they actually do is they ensheathe the connections between different neurons and essentially stabilize and keep these connections healthy. And they also interact with the blood brain barrier. So they, they do lots of different things. And the neurons and the astrocytes talk to each other. And the astrocytes essentially can modulate neuronal function. So one of the things that we're really interested in is understanding how these non-neuronal cells are impacted as well. And so some of the work that we have that we haven't published yet, but I'm very, very, very (laughs) excited about is that we're not only seeing previously seen changes in neuronal function, but we're also seeing changes in astrocyte maturation as well. So not only is the brain 
impacting the neurons, but also the non-neuronal cells that are so critical for supporting overall brain function. So, you know, and, and some of these studies have also been conducted in adult rodents, same binge paradigm, and we don't see the same effects. So it really seems to be critical. The timing seems to be really critical in terms of when that drinking starts and how much they drink. So that, that is all very fascinating. One, one thing I, I, I thought to myself, you know, people assumed they were just sponges support. And I, I thought to myself, I am not a scientist, but there is not a single thing in my body that I think is just kind of hanging out and has no purpose, like, <laughs> you know, or, or limited purpose. I'm going to skip my next question. And, and actually, because you mentioned the adult, the adult population with drinking and that really ties in nicely with this question. In a research article published in the Internal um, Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, they did a study titled Alcohol Consumption During the COVID-19 Pandemic, a cross-sectional survey of U.S. adults. They came to this following conclusion, quote, in sum, alcohol use in the U.S. is a public health problem that appears to have worsened since the onset of COVID-19. Adults during COVID-19 reported high levels of alcohol consumption, with those who reported high levels of impact from COVID-19 reporting significantly more alcohol, both more days and total drinks, than participants who were not as impacted by COVID-19. Additionally, participants reported perceived increases in their current alcohol intake compared to pre-COVID-19, end quote. Do you think there's value in researchers studying this kind of uptick population of folks who have reported heavier drinking during the pandemic? And do you, do you have any thoughts on what they might find if they did? Yes. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we're beginning to understand more and more is the intersection between trauma, depression, anxiety. <laughs> I mean, the list goes on. These, these adverse conditions and their relationship with drinking. And, you know, I think that the pandemic, you know, is a terrible thing, but it, I think that it really highlights that relationship. You know, one of the, I mentioned the Encanda Consortium before, but one of the great things was that they started to collect data years before the pandemic happened within the same population. Ah. Um, and what that meant that through the pandemic, they were actually able to see changes from baseline from yeah. prior to the pandemic. And one of the most striking things that they found was that depression symptoms tripled among late teens and young adults and was particularly apparent in females. So they saw worse sleeping habits, increased alcohol intake, which, you know, kind of goes hand in hand because if you drink a lot, it disrupts sleep, Sure, you know, and then, you know, you tie in the the, the depression part and it becomes this big vicious cycle. And, you know, I really think that, I mean, it impacted me a lot too, in terms of just not feeling much of a sense of purpose during that period of time. Sure. I'm, I'm a very, I love structure. I like mm. to plan my entire day. <laughs> Well, and the pandemic was just a consistent, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know, yeah, right? So it's like, do I mask? Do I, I mean, we got the guidance, right? But it's more just, I think in particular with the waves that have come, you know, Delta, Omicron, you, you know, you think, okay, this is where we're going to land. And then as soon as you try to kind of plan your strategy, then 
another wave comes. So yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, during the, the actual like physical lockdown, not only was there suddenly a, a loss of sense of purpose for some people, because either they were, they, you know, they weren't at work or they were trying to work from home, but, you know, suddenly they don't have to drive anywhere. So maybe they can have a drink earlier in the day and just all routine kind of goes out the window. And I think people feeling and finding purpose in their life is so important to sense of self-worth. Sure. And, you know, yeah, I think that looking into this uh, specific group that did escalate in their drinking would be, would be really powerful, you know, and it's funny because, you know, you talk to people and it's like the COVID 20, like the 20 pounds that you gained over COVID. <laughs> because also people weren't exercising. I think the only person I know that increased their exercising was my husband. <laughs> and he converted half of, half of our garage into a gym. <laughs> <laughs> but I I just snacked a lot. So not no, alone. We know that. <laughs> exercise is disrupted and we know how important exercise is for, you know, just feeling good and alleviating depression. And then you have the social interaction. That that doesn't impact some people as much, you know, if you're an introvert and you can, you know, you don't need that social interaction. I think you're fine, but you know, teens are transitioning from this period of seeking parental approval to seeking peer approval and rely so heavily on that, that peer interaction for their self-esteem. And, you know, in their teens, especially for females, their self-esteem drops dramatically anyway. So you have this period in which, you know, they're meant to be transitioning towards more independence and relying more on peer approval, and it's just gone. Right. And, and then you have this subpopulation that just don't have you know, good home lives and really depend on school to give them a sense of normalcy. And that's gone too. So they're stuck in this far from appropriate environment 24-7. Right. And I think that looking at those underlying factors would be, I, I think that they would really support this idea that that Alcohol is a complicated alcohol, excessive alcohol consumption is a complicated matter. It seems pretty simple on the on the front, you know, drink a lot and you're going to escalate and then you're going to, you know, it's going to become a problem. But sure. you have all these other things that can can contribute to that on so many levels. Absolutely. Absolutely. I saw on your CV that you have been, we're going to switch gears a little bit. I saw that um, you've been mentoring student, students for over a decade. And um, we talked a little bit before we started recording about uh, mentorship versus sponsorship. And and that, and I've talked about mentorship on this show um, before, but with that level of experience in mentoring students, what, what do you think makes some of the best mentor-mentee relationships? What, what sort of, sort of, things and, and sort of trust or, or communications need to exist there for, a, for an ideal relationship? 
Yeah, that's a, that's, I feel like that's kind of a hard question. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm sure it certainly depends somewhat on the individuals too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would probably say the most important things would be openness and trust. Yeah. But, you know, also when you get a student that is enthusiastic mm. and passionate and is there because they want to learn, not because they had nothing better to do with their time. Sure. <laughs> you know, I, I find the entire process like incredibly rewarding. You know, they're they're all different. They all have their different personalities and you kind of have to meet them where they're at. And, and that's the first step, right? Figuring out where they're at and then how to get them to where they need to be. And every journey for every student is, is really unique, but it's just, you know, when they come into the program, they're usually excited incredibly nervous. Oh yeah. And, but also typically really curious. And then as they progress in the program, you start to see it all come together and you can start to see that they're starting to critically think and start to ask questions and not be afraid that the question might be stupid. Right. Uh, and there's never a stupid question, but they always have it in their head that there is a stupid question. And, you know, then they suddenly start to transition to leading the project mm. that they were just following in. And that would be um, so fun to experience, I think, as the mentor to watch that transition happen. It's an amazing, yeah. I just, I just love to see how they're, they come in so timid and then they leave with confidence and as an expert in this field and you can throw questions at them and they can pretty much just handle anything. I love it. And then what we've also discussed on this show with a, a few of our guests is their mentors will come up as yours did. And the, and it's fascinating how the length of time those relationships last well beyond graduation, well beyond the next phase, and then sometimes into leadership roles. You know, I've interviewed guests that are in leadership roles and they still have a very strong relationship with some of their earliest mentors. So I think that's another super beneficial aspect, you know, becomes kind of a lifelong friend in the industry or, you know, the, the, um, what do I want to say? The uh, discipline of science, which is just great. I think. Yeah, I mean, I def I definitely have that relationship with Alvin and a number of other people that kind of came into my life a little a little later on that have just been incredibly supportive. Yeah, they do stay with you, and that's actually something that I tell the new incoming graduate students. So usually we all meet um, in a room and they get to ask questions and we answer and. You know, one of the things that I'd like to tell them is that, you know, our role as mentors is not just to have you come in here, teach you an experiment and collect data and write a paper and be done. Right. You know, our, our role is to be much more than that. And that if, and that you need to find a lab that fits for you. Not it's not just about the research, it's about the personality fit too. Sure. And if you can find both, it is incredibly rewarding for everyone. And it becomes a joy like to go into work every day. It's not 
it, it's no longer a chore. When, you know, when, when a graduate student slacks me at 10 o'clock at night because they found a paper and then we end up having this like amazing conversation about the, the science and the potential of what we could do based on this. And, and it's like, it's not within normal, normal hours, but, you know, we both love it so much that, you know, those things can happen. And uh, yeah, it's, it's rewarding. I, I love your particular take on it because you really do identify the benefits to the mentor as well, which I, th- I think people not, I don't, not in a bad way, but I don't, I don't think a lot of people's brains go there directly. Right. Because the mentor is, you know, it's, they think of it transactionally a little bit more transactionally as the mentor is guiding the student, but you're identifying some very, very feel good rewards for the mentor as well, which I love. Yeah. I mean, you know, our goal is not to just teach them to critically think, but ultimately our goal is to have them replace us. Right point, we're going to retire and they're going to be in our position. So our job is to provide them with all the tools necessary to get them to that stage. And obviously they're going to do a postdoc in between, but, you know, and, and we can continue to guide them through that process as we continue to mentor them as they grow. But yeah, we're, they're our replacements and we want yeah. them to be good, right? <laughs> the next line. <laughs> So um, kind of it, it, kind of in the same vein, I want to discuss diversity for a minute. Before we started recording, we had a nice conversation about around diversity, and I found that you're a passionate advocate of that, as I, as I am myself. Can you give me your thoughts on why you think a, a training a diverse class is so important, class to the next class to the next class, and, and just really pushing diversity up there through the years? I mean, I, I think that everyone brings strengths. Some of those strengths come from experiences. Some of them come from, some of them are cultural. Right. Um, everyone is unique and can bring something new to the table. And I think that that brings strength mm-hmm. and allows growth. And having, having diversity at the table also means that you, you know, one of the things that I think we've we've struggled with is this unconscious bias. Yes. You know, where, you know, one of the examples that was used a long time ago was sending out job applications, the exact same job application. The only difference was the name was changed. Yeah, um, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. So the name was sometimes very, you know, you could guess that the person was a white male versus a white female versus, you know, someone else. And the response to those identical applications were very different. Mm-hmm. Sometimes even just between man and woman, let alone. Right. Let's say a, a name you, you know, you can't pronounce. You're right. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I've seen that today too. Yeah. And so I I feel like if we can get to the point where we have good diversity and inclusion and all of these people at the table, we're much more likely to realize that everyone is just as capable as everyone else. Sure. And my hope is that that unconscious bias 
will diminish. Now, I'm not a psychologist. I could be sure wrong about that, but, you know, I'm an optimist, you know, but it's also about people, you know, for instance, you know, we have a, a rock star of a nicotine researcher in our department. He's fabulous. And, and we collaborate with him all the time. He He's African-American. And I know that there will be, I see how African-American students that join our program will go to him for certain things mm. because they understand kind of the the challenges, the unique challenges that they face, and they know that he's going to understand. And I have, you know, female students that come to me for the same things because there aren't a lot of female faculty, you know, you know, a man isn't going to necessarily understand the extent of how frustrating microaggressions can be Mm -hmm. when, you know, someone is a really nice person, but these things just kind of come out and you're like, really? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, you know, for, for my daughter, she's decided she wants to be an industrial engineer. (laughs) Wow. And I'm like, okay, you can can do whatever you want to do, but for her to be able to see women in that role and see that it's possible is so important. It's so important for everyone. Uh, to sure. see yourself represented. Sure. You're identify what you're identifying there is, yeah, not just bringing in the class of students that are, di- are diverse for the all the right reasons. Diversity is the tide that rises all boats. All the viewpoints, all the different viewpoints that you have make everything better. But you also need to push those people. Like you said before, there are replacements. You have to push those people up so that it, then that creates that flow then of the younger generation, like you said, seeing themselves represented and knowing, yeah, it's, it's why I told you before we started, that's why I, we do, we would do the podcast out of the office. We, you know, we want women and young girls in particular to know that, yeah, there are ladies at these role in these roles doing science and doing very, very well. <laughs> so it, it is extremely important. Speaking of experiences as a, a, female scientists? Have you yourself faced any unique challenges as a woman pursuing science or have female colleagues that have reported such challenges? I know, um, and before we started, we also discussed this. I've discussed with a few guests that palpable feeling in K through 12 schools that girls just aren't as good at math or aren't as good at science or just don't do it. And I know for myself, I felt that growing up and it, it was never overt. I don't even know. I can't even identify where that feeling comes from. And then an art, the other thing that we've seen, particularly during the pandemic, in an article published by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS, in February of last year, they stated, quote, with more time being spent on caregiving responsibilities during the COVID-19 pandemic, female scientists' productivity dropped, end quote. So I think just by virtue of being female, there are some things that happen from a very, very young age that are just would definitely influence women or girl or young ladies and girls going into science, but also adult women that have already made it or that, you know, the pandemic has forced them to see a, a whole new set of challenges. And so has that impacted you at all or female colleagues that you know of? Yeah, it has. I think that it's, it's interesting. So 
you have relationships, you know, marriages where very clearly there's an, an imbalance sure. you know, that one of the one of the careers, typically the man's career in most cases, is the most important. Right. And, you know, I was even told when my husband and I received our PhDs that we should do what was best for his career. Wow. You know, and it was, <laughs> it was shocking <laughs> and I was speechless, but, you know, one thing that we have tried to do, and I truly appreciate my husband for everything that he does is we, we went into our marriage with equality that, you know, there, there isn't, there isn't like a, an official split of duties it's that it just fluctuates, right? If he had a really busy week, then I will do more pickups and right. take care of more of the things that need to be taken care of at home. If I have a busy week and you know I have a grant due, then it shifts. So it's constantly this really dynamic relationship in terms of you know making sure that we get what we need to get done done. And that actually never changed during the pandemic. It That's remained great. the same, which, you know, like I said, I'm uh, in incredibly grateful uh, for that. But it's interesting because I saw other relationships around me where I thought that they had the same relationship. But when COVID hit, there was suddenly a shift towards well, you're the the mother, so you should take care of more of the things mm. in, in the home. And I should spend more time in, in the workplace and, and building my career. And where whereas I thought that it was was pretty equal. So yeah, I think that it varied uh, tremendously depending on the relationship. I I, I was lucky. Uh, but you know, having said that, trying to homeschool mm. uh, a child in elementary school. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I can't tell you how many times during the COVID, during this whole mess <laughs> that I've been grateful that I do not have children. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure they're a blessing, but I just, yeah, I can't even imagine trying to homeschool children right now. I I have a much, much more appreciation for their teachers. educators. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> trying to teach an entire room of them. <laughs> She did a great job, but it's still, you know, it was a very hard balance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I only have one final question for you. And I always ask this to my guests too. What is it that you would most wish young women and girls to know about pursuing a career in science? It is challenging, but it is wonderful. I I feel incredibly grateful that I came across mentors during my journey that saw something in me that I didn't see in myself and really encouraged me and pushed me to, you know, continue and see what I could achieve. It's if you like to, if you're curious and you like to ask questions and you're creative, you know, it's a great place to be. You get to you get to solve problems every day. Some of them aren't necessarily enjoyable because they're more administrative. Sure. The science part of it is, you know, an absolute joy. And when you get good data, it, it feels, yeah, it feels really wonderful. You get to guide brilliant minds to 
achieve wonderful things and watch them grow. And ultimately, even though it's not direct, our goal is to help people, right? Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to help people, but I never wanted to necessarily interact with patients. I don't know if that would be my strong point. Mine Uh, either. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, ultimately... The, the hope is that the, the science that we do will inform people of how to live healthier and happier lives and help cure disease or prevent disease. And, you know, that's that's the hope, right? That ultimately we help people. So if I think if you if you check all those categories, even if it's just creativity and curiousness, it will it will be your drive and your passion and, and it's a, a great career to be in. So well what a fantastic conversation, Dr. Risher. Thank you for joining me on the Women in Science and Medicine podcast today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here.